We're in a little series called Word Rooted Prayer and Worship, Keeping Your Heart Close to the Flame. The first part on prayer, it will blend into, I hope in a nice uh, harmonious way, into some studies on worship, what worship is, doesn't matter how we worship, the way we worship in our church. What does the Bible say about the way we worship, the content of our worship? That's where it's going to go eventually. But I wanted to start with prayer. I remember reading a book. I don't remember the name of the book. And the reason we're starting with some studies on prayer is the writer of the book very cleverly asked the question, thinking about the worship songs that we sing, would you, would you, would you like to get love songs from a person that never wanted to talk to you? Like prayer is related to worship. It keeps it from being just an emotional drink when you come into church where it's just God's presence and it, it feels so good. But there's all sorts of religions that can give you that. Not even Christian religions. What we're talking about is a living relationship with God and I wanted to start with prayer. And tonight I want to look specifically at, start looking at it. Just be brief tonight. Okay. Lots of times speakers say that and you don't believe them, but you watch. Tonight, I'm going to be a little bit briefer so we have time for worship and prayer groups. And I like to keep Sunday nights to about an hour somewhere in that framework because I know we have families that come with little kids and want to be mindful of all that. Praying in faith. I have three texts. Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That kind of belief is important. It's called faith. Matthew 17, 20. They're trying to cast out a demon. It's not working. They come to Jesus. What gives? 17, 20. He said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And there's something in all of our hearts that immediately looks at that and questions it. But Jesus meant what he said. What did he mean? Third text is James 5.15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. I could have piled up a dozen texts. I think you know that. So there's three. And without, right now, without analyzing them phrase by phrase, I think you can see at least one truth from reading those three texts. It seems to be Faith is quite important. Even if you had questions and even if we didn't analyze the text, I think anybody could read those three texts and agree and say, faith seems significant to the subject of prayer. What what is less obvious, because it's not specifically explained in any of those texts, what what is involved in praying with that kind of faith? If 
if that's so important for coming to God, reaching God, having answers to prayer, how do I get this? How can I make this work in my own life? How can I grow in this exercise of faith that seems so crucial? The, the key thought tonight that I want to delve into is faith, faith needs to have some kind of a foundation, an object in which trust is put, confidence is placed. And what I want to study tonight is how, how that works. How, how do I grow in that kind of confidence? What is it that feeds faith? Because while it's true, it's true, faith is the, you know, the King James especially says the evidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's true. You, we, don't, we don't see God. We don't see Jesus when we're praying. But that doesn't mean faith is just something we have to sort of hype up in our minds. God is invisible, but he's not unreasonable. And there are things we can do to feed our faith and our confidence in him. I want to look at three things tonight that I think form a bit of a skeleton. We'll build on it in future weeks. A framework that holds faith up, that builds it up in our own experience, in our own prayer life. Three things that feed faith in all of our hearts. So here's one. Faith needs to be nourished by the direct promises of God. I read a a biography of Martin Luther, where Martin Luther used to say he rubbed God's ears with his promises when he prayed. That's a great sentence. He rubbed God's ears with his promises. The direct promises of God. We know some of them. Promises for wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, James 5, 6. Ask, ask God. Physical healing, James 5, 15 and 16. Pray one for another that you will be healed. Material needs. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And that's expanded in Philippians 4, 18 and 19. Inner peace. The God of peace that guard your hearts and minds is the phrase that he uses. Think on these things. Now, it is true. It is true that there are specific gifts of faith, gifts of miracles for some needs. Paul talks about that. We believe that. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Paul writes and says, to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. So there's such a thing as the gift of faith, which is, is a, an unusual uh, confidence in the answer to prayer in the one praying. Just, just I don't want to use the word premonition because that makes it sound like it's just something psychological. And it's not. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. But it feels like just a... Uh, a premonition, a foreknowing, God's going to work here. That, that gift of faith. 
But when James says, pray one for another that you might be healed, he doesn't mean that every single person praying has the gift of faith. That's a special gift of faith. A special assurance given. But the capacity to pray in faith isn't limited to just a few. We're, we're meant to, we're meant to feed faith with the promises of God. Faith can be exercised, it can grow, it can be diminished. If I just run to God in the face of an emergency, I'm not in the word, my life isn't sustained by a strong devotional presence in the word, I'm always going to have a hard time believing God for anything. I'll shriek out, but it'll just be the cry of an amateur. Please, God, do something. Not saying God never answers those prayers. He's particularly gracious when he does. But faith needs to be nourished by the promises of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Make sure in your devotional times, wherever you're studying in God's word, I think it's always a good idea, Old Testament, New Testament, to, to kind of, I don't know how you do your notes. I still do a lot of old-fashioned stuff with a pen and paper. But however you do it, take note of promises when God gives you a promise. You'll, you'll do your heart a big favor if you start, it's like accruing interest. You, you put those promises in your head and keep feeding yourself with them. You, you, you rarely have the strength to believe a promise just with one study. The power of promises, it sort of piles up as you dwell on them for a while. Train your mind around the promises of God. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is, I know none of this is in your notes. I'm, I'm just, what will happen is the need, the problem, the situation will always look bigger than the promise of God. But that's because you need more of God's promises, getting more attention until their weight starts to grow. And they counterbalance your natural lack of faith and unbelief. Promises of God. Here's another fuel for faith, growing in faith. Remember God's passion to glorify his name. In terms of sheer volume, it is amazing to go through the scriptures and notice the number of times where God specifically says he's going to do something and the sole reason for doing it is to glorify his own name. When I do that, it's called boasting and it's called ego. Because I'm not as great as I might tell you I am. When God does it, when God does something to glorify his name, it's not boasting and it's not ego. It's for my good because it makes it easier for me to put my trust in him. God glorifying himself is an act of compassion. My glorifying myself is an act of ego. Do you see the difference in those two things? I've been looking at some verses. 1 Samuel 12, 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. If God doesn't forsake his people, it's not because they don't deserve forsaking. They have nothing but a history of idolatry and unfaithfulness and spiritual coldness. 
God says, but I've chose you for my namesake, the least, the smallest, the most unworthy. I'm going to make a people out of you. I'm not doing it because you're special. I'm doing it because I'm special. For his great namesake. Because, because the surrounding nations will look and they'll say, we have our gods. We offer all sorts of things, including our own children, to our idols. We're greater, mightier, more militarily powerful than this little nation of Israel. What is so special about them? The only explanation can be, they're God. See, for my name's sake. For Second Samuel 7, 23. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name by doing for them great and awesome things and driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. Isaiah 63, 14. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. It was for them indirectly. It was for his glorious name. Psalm 106, 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Okay, so the point is, Verse 7, they did everything wrong that they could do, right? Verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Now, there's the principle. What I want to show you now is how that relates to prayer. That's what we're talking about. Praying in faith, feeding faith. The direct promises of God start there. Feed your mind and meditate on them. Now we're looking at God's passion to glorify his name. I've showed you examples of it. What I want to show you now is how does this passion for God to glorify his name, how does that relate to my prayer life? And I want to look at Abraham. And then I'm going to look at Moses. And then I'm going to look at Joshua. And what you'll see, I think, is so many people who accomplish great things through prayer remembered this principle of God's passion to glorify his name. Start with Abraham, Genesis 18, 20 to 25. God's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see through this passage, God is, he's testing Abraham. It's not like God doesn't know what's going on. Though reading the words, you would get that impression. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. And then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Lots. Abraham's nephew is there. Rini told me a couple of weeks ago, I said cousin. Yes, I know the difference between a cousin and a nephew. I don't know why I said that. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. 
And then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God, here's your character. Here's your great name. It's, it's, not like, it's not like Abraham is telling God something he doesn't know. God is pulling this out of Abraham's heart. God, do you know what people are going to say about you? If you do this, that's what Abraham is saying. Well, of course God knows. What he wants is Abraham to rest on, learn to pray according to God's passion for his glory. That's what God is teaching Abraham. Look at Moses. It's in Exodus 32, 9 to 14. Is this in your notes? Eh? Sorry. There are no notes, are there? You guys need a better church. Exodus 32, 9 to 14. It's, it's, it's Marilyn's fault. What? <laughs> it's not Marilyn's fault. It's Chris's fault. Okay. Exodus 32, 9 to 14. Okay, smarten up, you guys. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And God now is going to test Moses. Now, therefore, let them alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I will make a great nation of you. That must have sounded appealing to Moses. God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Moses. Let's get rid of these losers. I'll make out of you a great nation. You see what he's doing? Testing Moses. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? 12, look at this. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, to consume them from the face of the earth? God is offering Moses a chance to be a star. I will build a nation out of you. And Moses, he shines brilliantly. Moses' big concern is, God, I don't want anybody saying this about you. Your glory means more to me than my reputation. Bingo. That's how you pray. God's glory has to be a burning passion in your heart. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, Israel, your servants. Why is he bringing this up? to whom you swore by your own self. God, it's, it's your word, it's your integrity, it's your glory. That's what I care about. That's what makes him intercede for the people. Okay, I got to hurry. Joshua, last example. Joshua 7, 8, and 9. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us 
and will cut off our name from the earth. You think that would be bad enough, but look what he says. And what, what will you do for your great name? Your great name. Even our prayers for forgiveness, even our prayers for forgiveness are not founded on our own worth or on our self-esteem or on our worthiness, but on God's faithfulness to his name and reputation. Look at, look at Psalm 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name's sake, pardon my guilt. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins. It's a key point. It's a key point. Three. So, if you want to grow in faith, specifically in times of prayer, the promises of God, learn them, memorize them, commit them to memory, say them over and over again, give them weight in your consciousness. When you pray, it, there's more to it than just the meeting of your need. I'm not belittling that. I'm not saying God doesn't care about our needs. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying when I pray, I should have a, the primary concern of, of God's glory, his faithfulness to his word. Three, here's the third thing that will help build faith. My heeding the direction of the spirit of God in my conscience. I get this from 1 John 3, 21 and 22, beloved. John is an old man as he writes this. A lot of people think it's the last thing he wrote. I don't know that there's clear proof of that, but there's good, good evidence. He's in his 90s. And you can tell he cares for these people. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, if you, if you read it carelessly, you can walk away with the impression that we, we get what we ask from God because of our works, because we keep his commandments. God's going to give me my request because I'm really good at obeying him. And, and, and that's not really what the text is about. I, I, I hear God's voice in many ways, primarily through his word, the Bible, but but the effect of not obeying God when he speaks, that does something to my heart. It's my confidence that gets shaken when God's will is ignored in any part of my life. The disobedience might be outward. He's not just writing about that. The effect of that disobedience is inward. John says there are, there are immediate repercussions in my prayer life. When I pray and ask God's forgiveness for a specific point of disobedience, okay? Think about this with me for a minute. Some area where I've really disobeyed him, clearly disobeyed God. I feel badly and I go and I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Okay, question number one. Does God instantly forgive me? How many would say yes? I'm putting my hand up. That's a clue. 
How many say, no, he doesn't forgive me? Okay, so he does. Question number two is different. Given that I specifically fail God, maybe a couple times it's happened, and I, and I go back and I ask for forgiveness, and he forgives me, and I think, even if it's repeatedly, if I'm sincere, I believe I am instantly forgiven. My question now is different. My question is, am I exactly the same person inside as if I had not committed those sins? And the answer is, if you're talking about my standing before God, the record of my sin against me that Jesus said was nailed to the cross, I'm absolutely pure in God's eyes. That's not what John is writing about here. John's not writing about my record before God. John is writing about the way my mind's going to start working when I pray. Do you, do you see the difference? He's, he's not writing about there, objectively, justification. He's not writing about that. He's writing about, I'm going to go to God again with something else. And it, it, it will get harder for me to exercise confidence in God when my mind, my mind, even though it knows it's forgiven, I can have the theology straight, the doctrine straight in my mind. But this, this mind can play, can play with me a bit when I go to pray. And there is someone called the accuser of the brethren and the sister in too, by the way. And, and don't think for a minute that forgiven as I am, forgiven as I am, that when I go to God with my need, that's not going to play there. Confidence. Confidence. So the next time you hear a sermon and, and it's on the discipline of holiness, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it, oh, there's that pastor again. He's hammering away on everybody being holy. Goodness knows we're not holy enough. We try, but we're never going to measure it. You can look at it that way, or you can say, you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to help me in my prayer life. He's trying to keep my thinking anchored in pleasing God, not just how many times I've messed up. Rub God's ears with his promises. Feed your mind with them. Make God's glory the number one concern of your life. And under that second point, let me, and I'm not talking about Cedarview. I think Cedarview does fairly well in a lot of things. But I, I listen to a lot of uh, songs that a lot of other churches sing. And it's amazing how many worship songs end up being primarily about me. God not failing me. God not letting me down. My peace, my protection. My happiness, me, 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 me. When really worship ought to be God, 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 God. So that concern for God's glory, that doesn't just happen. Churches grow in that. And the third thing, a heart that doesn't condemn you. There's a lot at stake in holiness. It's not that God can't forgive. It's that your prayer life gets affected by repeated failures. And those three things will go a long way in helping the prayer of faith to grow in our hearts. And I did that in 26 minutes, which proves miracles still happen in the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And this start, as we look at faith, 
how faith grows and how it works and how it affects our prayer lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll encourage us, encourage us in all of these things. We need to learn your promises. We need a heart that burns for the glory of God. And we need to learn to pray without condemnation. Teach us to please you in all that we do. To listen when you speak by your spirit through your word. Because that will feed faith in our prayer life too. Bless us now as we worship and as we pray together. In Jesus' name, amen.